That's amazing. I remember four months before this revelation, uh, carefully trying to explain to a wonderful black family in England why it is they couldn't hold the priesthood. Having Christmas dinner with them. And just almost weeping that when, when they decided not to join because this was a big burden for them. Uh, and trying to somehow explain the doctrine of that the Lord was going to extend it first to because Cain had rejected it, and then there was a then, there was this, then, there. we had this big long explanation. None of it was right. And so that's why I think it's, it's a wonderful move on the church's part to say church records offer no clear insights into the origin of this practice. And any other explanation, supposition, anything would be inaccurate. And they're basically saying, we don't know why. We just know that it happened. And we're so grateful that the revelation came in 1970. Didn't President Kimball mention that previous prophets were all prayerful? Yes. Yeah. And there's a wonderful article from Edward Kimball talking about the process. You can actually... Go to Google and thumb them and, and find it. Um, and he talks about the fact that uh, President McKay became very, very clear that this was a practice, not a doctrine, and he wasn't sure where the roots of it had come from. But also in his prayer, he was also being given the direction that said, not yet. And, but th- and that, that, for whatever reason, the church wasn't ready. That's what Darius Gray, who was the head of Genesis, uh, black uh, association within the, the church believes the church just wasn't ready. Yeah. And it's interesting you just mentioned his name. I was flipping around on the TV this week and saw a documentary that said no one knows more blacks and more than It was on the documentary channel. Darius is Darius is really a good guy. In fact, Darius. Yeah, yeah. Darius Gray was one of the first. As soon as this revelation happened, he was. They got him ordained to the temple really quick because he had been he had just been foremost in the front of all of that. So. Anyway, I think that there's, a, there's also another intro uh, to uh, section 132 on plural marriage that uh, in a couple of weeks we will take a look at that unless you Google it. It's not very substantive. It's not substantive like this is. Okay. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. How do you know that the black members of the church were ordained? Like, where is that? Yeah. Uh, we, we, have their, we have their names. I don't remember them right off. Uh, it's in the journals that we had that they were ordained, and then when they got to Salt Lake, Brigham Young asked them not to exercise that priesthood. So, and we did have, for instance, we had a black sister in the in the first Vanguard wagon in 1847. She was in the first group that came into the valley. Yeah. I was acquainted with a woman in Salt Lake years ago whose family came with 
understood that they worked for President Nelson And um, they had been members of the church their entire lives, all the generations down through. Wow. And she worked at the same Association for the Right. She was the most wonderful woman. I just loved her. And she was the most faithful. She and her husband and all of her children and all of their all of their brothers and sisters and you know their extended family back to when the saints came in and saw them that they faithful members of the church. Yep, I think it's cool. Now what you're watching with this and the Joseph Smith papers and everything else, the church is really working hard on openness, trying to begin to be very open and and, and that's why I think one of the I, I was read I've been reading again through uh, uh, Richard Bushman's book, uh, Rough Stone Rolling. Beautiful book. Very, very uh, unflinching and uh, putting things out there, but I think that was critical that we have a book like that that just says we're taking these issues on head on. So we need, we need to do that. Okay? All right. Uh, that said, um, one more. I, uh, I was going to do this a little closer to Easter, but I just think you might want to have access to it. Um, because it's going to fit with what we're what we're talking about. Um, little, a quick little Easter video. A few weeks ahead. This is really brief. It's only it's less than two minutes, uh, but it but it is beautiful in its presentation, um, and I I just think it's awesome. Is that awesome? 
I can't, I can't watch, I've watched this about a hundred times and I never do it with a dry eye. Because I just think, there's a, there's a spirit there that says, yes, he did it. He said he would and he did. And sometimes we go through that and it's supposed to be a very tearful thing. This is a joyous thing. These are my buddies that, with the skip guys. If you'll just go, uh, if you'll just uh, Google thumb. <laughs> just Google. The, 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 skit, the skit guys, Peter, Peter and John. They're the ones I did a, I, I showed a video a few times back, God's Chisel. Uh, these guys did that too. That's actually Peter and John the Apostles. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> the the, the, the skit guys are other. The skit guys are the skit guys. They they're actually a Christian group, and they've done a number of videos uh, with a killer one on Prodigal Son. By the way, once you get huh? Is that the name of the video? Yeah, the name of the video is Peter and John. Okay. Yeah. So, that cool. All right. That said. Um, trying to figure out how to uh, approach this, um, I need to. Uh, we need to be able that this can be a, a bit drenched in history today. Uh, I'm kind of a, a Nabuaholic anyway, uh, and so this is this is kind of my favorite part of church history is is Nabu. It's a brief period of time, especially the time that Joseph Smith was there, but it's so rich in history and things that were happening. And it was a pivotal moment in the church history because so much doctrinal stuff came. The doctrinal developments at Nauvoo were astounding. And they took the saints, and we're going to talk about in just a second, and shift, shifted their whole paradigm and how they looked at just about everything. Okay, so let's... Let's... Uh, start off with the fact... Uh, somebody want to hop to... Uh, Isaiah 52.7 Because uh, Joseph, after he got up, after uh, he, he landed in Quincy, down the river, about 25 miles down, down river, uh, where most of the saints had gathered. The saints were gathered principally in Quincy, Illinois, and uh, Keokuk, Iowa, as they streamed out of Missouri. So this would be 1839, 1838, 1839. And, and especially Quincy was uh, especially welcome uh, to the fact that when we dedicated the uh, Nauvoo Temple, uh, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir actually performed a concert in Quincy to thank them for how welcoming they had been to the saints in 1839. Is there a module in there? Yeah, we're just grateful for the people of Quincy. In fact, uh, when, when Cindy and I went up for the open house at the Nauvoo Temple, I deliberately stayed in Quincy as my way of saying thank you. I figured we could be closer, but I just wanted to stay in a hotel room just to kind of thank you. Thank you. Okay, now Joseph then went up the river. He stood up on the bluff, probably across the, uh, over Montrose, or looking down on it, and he, and he declared that he was going to change the name of commerce to Nauvoo. So who's got uh, uh, Isaiah 52, 7? Okay. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, 
that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Okay, that very first beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountain in Hebrew is Nauvoo. It's the only place it shows up in the scriptures. It's actually Nau, but but if you go back to the ancient Aramaic, the way that Joseph learned it, uh, it was actually pronounced Nauvoo. So, and it meant beautiful situation, beautiful plantation, beautiful setting. Okay, and so that's where it comes from, as Isaiah 52 said. Okay. All right. They, uh, they purchased, they got up there, uh, they, bought, they purchased land from Isaac Galland. The, the original idea with Nauvoo was that they, would, they purchased two large plots. One was, was in that bend of the river, uh, which, by the way, let me just tell you, just by history, a little interesting piece of history, uh, if you go just up from Nauvoo and you go up to Keokuk, uh, which is often where I've stayed is in Keokuk, uh, uh, there's a large lock there. How many have been to Nauvoo? That's awesome. That, that, that big massive lock, that, that dam that is there uh, on the Mississippi River right there, uh, is, is helped to regulate the Keokuk Rapids. Okay? Those Keokuk Rapids were very first uh, uh, regulated and uh, by by a uh, young uh, civil engineer from the federal government by the name of Robert E. Lee. Just coming out of West Point, that was his first assignment, was to go out to uh, take a look at the Keokuk Rapids about what could be done to regulate those rapids on the Mississippi. Okay. Uh, so you could come down a little bit, and Isaac Gallon had had two tracts of land. One, one he actually owned, and one that he didn't. Uh, he sold them both pieces of land, on one on the, the little bend in the river where Nauvoo is, and then across the river on the other side, just a little bit north of where Montrose was, and so the original plan was to have twin cities, to have Nauvoo and Zarahemla on different sides of the Mississippi River. They started with Nauvoo. By the time they got ready to settle uh, Zarahemla, it became apparent that they really didn't own, Isaac Gallon really didn't own, uh, didn't have possession of that land. And so then, actually, if you then look at where the settlements go from Nauvoo, it, it'll be like a uh, wagon spoke. And you will see... Uh, uh, settlements spreading out in an arc around them, and and they are uh, they are interesting. For instance, one about that you can actually still see a marker for. If you go down about ten miles down, you'll see a little sign for the city of Yearlong. And if you'll if you'll follow the road up into Yearlong, and it sits right there, that was settled by uh, the. Uh, Remember the Colesville Saints under Isaac Morley had been in Colesville. They went out to Missouri. They settled south of Independence. They were cast out of there, and they went as a group and they and they settled that area. And they took Isaac Morley's name, turned it around, and called the place Yearlow. <laughs> okay, that's uh, where uh, Eliza Snow would end up uh, spending a lot of her time. Yearlow. 
south of there. But that's so we get all of that. So here's this wonderful setting. The other prop now, now Nauvoo itself, and you guys, you guys have been there, really kind of understand this. Nauvoo really had two levels to it, right? There were the flats, and then they were up on the bluff. Okay. The problem with the flats was what? It was very marshy. Because that, especially depending on one of the reasons why they needed to put a lock on the Keokuk Rapids, is that that bend in the river was really prone to flooding. So it was very marshy in there. And in fact, if you're coming into Nauvoo from the south and you're driving up that road, and that's always a, an impressive moment to. If you're coming up that road and you see the flats there, and then you turn the bend, and what do you see? The temple is right there, huge. Well, on that road as you come in, there is a ditch that runs parallel to the road on there. That was originally dug by those early saints as a, one of the ways to drain the swamp because we were dying from malaria, and the mosquitoes were just killing us all. That's why if you go in, and there were so many, that we're going to talk about in a second, the two uh, most uh, consistent popular activities in Nauvoo were scratching, no, it's probably number one, you're right. Funerals and baptisms for the dead. We're going to talk about that in a second. But funerals were so prevalent that they had to regulate it to the point of saying, we're only going to do funerals on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And if you walk through the old burial ground at the top of Carly Street, the most sacred spot. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is my favorite spot in all of Nauvoo, next to the, the temple, the old burial ground. You'll find all of this. Go through and read the headstones, and you'll find it there on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And that's where I think we're going to find the revelation of. Uh, for Seymour Brunson, that we're going to talk about in a second. It's so critical. Okay, you can probably turn the heat up now. It's getting kind of cool. Yeah, you want to get that? Thank you, sir. If it's cool to me, then I know it's really cool to you. <laughs> okay. Um, so we finally get the flats drained. And, and most of the, the, the main street and everything is going to end up saying we're going to have, most of the, the saints are going to begin to concentrate, first of all, living down in the flats. And then the farms are going to be out across the hills uh, going to the east of Nauvoo. Okay? All right. Some of these you have, uh, if you've been to uh, Nauvoo, this is what? Yeah, well, Gavin. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is their first home. Isaac Gallons that Joseph Smith bought moved his family into it, and it sits. You're almost you're almost standing in the Mississippi River at this moment. You're you're standing there on Water Street, uh, right? The Nauvoo House is behind you, and you're looking up at the Joseph Smith House, and and the very first principal part is the white and brown part of that. The brown part off to the side was an addition built later. Uh, why this is significant, I think, to me, is that we have in our history this, this moment where we have so many saints, especially in the summer of 1839, that are so uh, ill 
with uh, the Beleri, the Agu, and all that, that they are, um, everybody's sick and ill, and what they're doing is that they're bringing their sick, and they're laying them uh, at the Joseph Smith house, and so they are spread out from the house in tents and blankets and stuff, and everybody is ill. And Joseph is actually ill in the house. Uh, and it's a pretty... And then on the other side of the river, on the Montrose side, directly across, people are ill over there. Everybody's sick. And this is the moment we have in our history where finally Joseph goes, enough of this. And he kind of rises and is healed, and he begins to move forward in a way to begin to heal. And there's this mass healing that begins to go on. And he starts coming down off of the house and beginning to uh, heal people and to begin and, and, and then he begins to heal the brethren and sending them out in a way. Uh, he will then cross the river and he will begin to heal on the other side and then, uh, I think it's John Taylor, Wilford Woodrow. Will then say, I have more people here that need it. Joseph will then remove a very large red handkerchief. And, it, and we have it in our church history, and I've seen it in the, in the uh, church history museum, very large handkerchief. And he gives it, and he says, wipe them with this, and they'll be healed. And it will also forever be a covenant between us of my love for you. So that's staying with that. Yeah. Does he do that? Is he healed first? And yes. So it just... Yeah, through faith, it's like, okay, it's time, and there's just this massive wave of healing. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So to me, that's that's one of those sacred spots to me. When when you're in when you're in Nauvoo, it's it's nice to kind of stand there. We still don't own the house that's owned by the community of Christ, the, the organized. Uh, okay. Um, by the way, they were ultimately, Joseph and Hiram and Emma were ultimately buried underneath a pump house just to the, out in front of the brown part there. Their graves are now just barely on the other side. But they, they laid there for a long time. But their very first graves were underneath the Nauvoo house on the other side of Water Street. We're going to talk about the mansion house in just a second. Yeah, because it is, because there are three, there's this house uh, across Water Street City. Right here is the Nauvoo house, and then the mansion house is just on the other side where they, li they lived for a while. Uh, and the mansion house we're going to talk about because it was directed by the Lord to be built for strangers coming in. It was to be the hotel. For Nauvoo. No, this is just the Joseph Smith house. I don't have a picture. I should have had a picture. Uh, across the street. In fact, we're standing... To take this picture, we'd have to be standing with our back to the Nauvoo House and the Mississippi River right at our left. And the mansion house was the house, their original, their residence when they moved from here. And it was it was where their bodies were, bought, were brought after the martyrdom and all that. All right. Uh, we have extant, extant uh, only really one photograph of Nauvoo. Remember that the uh, photography was just barely coming into play now, daguerreotypes. Uh, this is really about the only one that we have. Uh, 
and it, it's in black and white, it's pretty grainy, but it gives you a couple of things. Uh, one, you can see, um, I wish I had a pointer. Um, the the uh, John the the Wilford Woodruff house is just you got the temple. There's a white capped house, and then the Wilford Woodruff house would be right about there. Uh, you can see how many homes are all uh, in the flats. We're standing in the flats, looking up at the bluff. It's up there, and if you you can't you can't see it very closely, but right at the base of the temple, if you go a little bit to your left, you'll see a little blip. There's a little house up there. That was Party Crack. Party Crack had a little shack there for taking donations for the temple. It's kind of kind of what that is. Okay. Um, you can see some trees as you come down here. That was the grove that uh, while this was being built, but oft times down in the grove is where Joseph preached a lot. Uh, right at the extreme left. Yeah, go, go from the temple and go straight down the knoll and you start to see some trees. There was a large grove there of trees that, that constituted the tabernacle basically until the temple was built. The other sermons were oftentimes preached in the old burial ground because they were preached like that, the one on baptism for the dead was preached in a sermon at a funeral. Alright, but that's really the only... But, but you do get some sense. Nauvoo was finally the, the place where they got to lay out the city in plaques, which meant that we're going to be in the city, but we're going to have large lots, enough that we can have a garden to take care of our needs, and then our farms will be miles uh, inland. But, but there were large gardens in, all along the way here. Okay? That is the red brick store. Uh, it it uh, was eventually torn down. There's a replica of that red brick store that, that stands there now. Uh, but this is this is kind of critical because this is the, the place of Relief Society and the first temple endowments we're, we're performing here. Okay. It when Joseph Smith opened it, at the bottom was a store. The, the top part was his office, and so a lot of a lot of things that he did were upstairs in the red brick store. Okay. It was also behind there that he was playing ball with the boys. Uh, a lot of stories about that area, because right behind that 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 row of trees behind the red brick store uh, blocks the Mississippi. It's right the Mississippi's right there. All right. Now, Nauvoo becomes critical for doctrinal developments. And that is that there were, the, the first revelation that we're now going to get, section 124 that we're talking about today, if you'll notice it, in my section 124, look at the date. When was that given? 1841. Now flip one back to section 123. What date was that given? 39. You have, you have a break of two years. During this time, uh, one of the reasons why there's such a long break here is that Joseph is uh, getting out of Liberty Jail. He's making a trip to Washington with a petition for everybody, all the properties that were lost in, uh, in Missouri. He's going to come back. He's going to be trying to settle all of this. Uh, he's going to be a pretty busy guy. 
for, for a while until we get section 124. Now, what happens in 1841 and 1842 is a doctrinal explosion of things. And I want to try and cover some of those today to talk about the doctrinal developments that happened in Nauvoo. This was Joseph at his zenith. This was at its absolute height. 1842 was a momentous year. Like I said, I think it was Joseph at his prophetic height. He would be dead two years later, and he would have to spend the next two years in hiding uh, for the, the things that were happening from enemies without and within. 1842 is the high. Okay. Uh, I did like this quote. It actually shows up in, uh, to, to give you a bit, bit of a background. This is actually in Rough Stone Rolling. This is a religious historian. She says, Direct inspiration survives only when it is supported by a sacred mythos embedded in sacred practices. Ugh. Somebody put that in uh, English. Sacred or direct inspiration survives only when it is supported by a sacred mythos embed, embedded in sacred practices. You gotta be able to do it in order for it to survive. I like that. How else? Yeah. Okay. So there's a belief system, and it has to be embedded in what? Practices. And we would call that ritual, ordinance. So, that said, 
Here's one of those questions that would come to somebody that is maybe taking a look at the church or they spend a little bit of time studying Mormonism. What's the deal about the Masons? What's the deal about Masonry and, the, and, and Joseph Smith? Well, let, let's walk through that. Because I just think it's one of those explanations that we need to have. Right. Okay. So, let's talk about just from a political standpoint. Because some of the brethren that Cal Hiram was one that was, that was a Freemason. And, who? Originally Joseph was, and Hiram was, and then he's going to, we'll talk about him. He now joins now in. He's in 42. Here it comes. Um, from a, a strictly political standpoint, it would make sense to a church that's just been driven out of Missouri to align themselves with the local people of the church to try and do things so we wouldn't get driven out of another state. And one of the things that bound a lot of the small communities in that area of uh, Illinois and uh, Missouri, that corner of Missouri and Iowa, you get three states kind of right in this area, was masonry. There were a number of lodges in this area, and in Illinois, it was a fairly big deal. Okay, so I think that's one of the things that kind of piqued Joseph's interest a little bit. Number two, I think about in order to become a mason, two things had to be present. Number one, you had to be a really good person, and you had to be attested to be a good. It's not a religion; it's like an Elks club. It is. It's very much. It was a fraternity. Uh, a fraternity, and again, you had to be a very good person, and you had to be invited in, you had to be sponsored by somebody else, and it's still that way now. It's not just a fraternity, though. It was based on religion, based on religion. Absolutely. So, so here, that, that has some deep roots to it, as Joseph is going to discover. So there was some interest in some of the brethren saying, we like this thing. It seems to bind us with other organizations here. Uh, and for Joseph, then, he's going to uh, he'll be interested in it. 1841, uh, he's, he's going to approve uh, the first lodge being built in Nauvoo. Uh, there, the first lodge was uh, approved by the... Uh, the uh, Masons in, in uh, Illinois that it could be done. There was a handful of brethren that were Masons. Um, March 15, 1842, there's going to, under the, that direction, they're going to now begin to install new members. Joseph will be one of those. He's now going to be introduced to Masonry and, and the practice. He's going to learn about this. Um, The next day, Joseph becomes a master mason. Uh, in order to be to be able to work up the level in, in masonry, it is a lot of memorization. You have to memorize and then be able to repeat back. You have to know what you're doing. Joseph went through this in a period that could be kind of lengthy, and he did it in a day. Just absorbed it. 
Because for one thing, as he read through it, it would begin to be very, very familiar to him. He recognized it. And he would end up saying, Freemasonry was taken from the priesthood, but, had, but has become degenerated. But many things are perfect. And he would take that back to the fact that if you... Uh, the, the roots then are going to kind of go back uh, to uh, uh, Egyptus and Egypt and uh, them trying somehow to get the priesthood. They're not able to do it, so they start coming up with other forms of that. Then when they're going to send uh, masons to help build King Solomon's temple... Uh, they are going to uh, they're going to bring that information with them. It's one of the reasons why, because that being a mason, so much of masonry in, incorporates the tools of masonry, and that's why you're going to get the compass and the square and the grips and everything that go with masonry. But it was a way of teaching concepts for the common man. Joseph is going to look at this and go. These are much ancient than anybody realizes. And he will learn it very, very quickly. He'll recognize it for what it is. Um, and then, uh, on March 30th, the organization of the Relief, Relief Society, we're going to talk about, wow, we're running out of time. Uh, the organization of the Relief Society and their inclusion in this will ultimately help result in his death two years later. It's very, it's very tied in to why it is that the prophet was killed. The first endowment is then issued on uh, May 4th, 1842, and it will incorporate a number of elements of masonry in it. Because he can see the parts, he incorporates the parts that, that are re, uh, inspired, and he leaves out the parts that aren't. Yeah. Have I got the wrong date? Yes. Okay. Yes, you're right. That's right. You're right. I don't know. Where did I get March 30th? It's weird. Okay. Now, this becomes kind of important. Um, by the way, let, let, me, let me back off of this. So I want you to see that. You see the top of the Nauvoo Temple? That's kind of zeroing in on what we have of that original Nauvoo Temple. The angel on top of the Nauvoo Temple is right there. See anything peculiar about that? For, for one thing, the angel's laying down. This is the angel. He's got a book. That's right. What's next to the book? You see it? You've got the, the square and the compass. That's, that's the X there. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. That's Masonic. Yeah. There were no Washington anointings in Kirtland, but the endowment, the first endowments would take place in Nauvoo. Okay? Alright, so sometimes, this has sometimes been called the, uh, the Masonic Angel. Okay? Now, why does this become important? Um... And then, then let me show you the difference in just a second. What's going to happen is, is that Joseph is going to recognize 
the, the eternal parts of masonry, he will incorporate that in. Uh, but part of the thing is that he will also, because it's the eternal part, and the Relief Society is now part of this couple of months here, they not the first endowments will incorporate a number of elements of masonry, but they're also going to incorporate women. That's a big no-no. In masonry, it's a fraternity of men. Women have their own organization. But he's going to see that this that the importance of men and women together in these ordinances. Uh, they are going that there's going to be a moment uh, after the, the endowments are first completed in the upper room of the red brick store, that the, the people themselves are going to, that there is a tradition that exists, according to Susan Easton Black, there's a tradition where they're looking for a second Solomon, somebody that will bring masonry to its full flower and glory, and the masons that were involved in that after the endowment were so excited about Joseph Smith, they carried him on their above their heads, out into the streets, and there was this big massive procession through the streets that the second Solomon has appeared. He has arrived. Yes. In all of his glory and power. And that stirred up things in a number of lodges in Illinois, especially in with uh, the head of the lodge in Warsaw, just down the, the road, Thomas Sharp, who owned the, the uh, Warsaw Signal, who became the, the one that would organize the Carthage attack. And but part of it was because Joseph, Joseph was becoming, but part of it was an attack on Masonry. And, it, and it's, it's, it's speculation, but not out of the realm of possibility, that uh, at Carthage Jail, as Joseph is being fired at, and he's taking fire from uh, the door, that he will then go to the window, he will look out, he will see fellow Masons out there, and he begins the Masonic uh, mercy cry. Oh Lord my God, they killed the carpenter's son. And he gets as far as, oh Lord my God, and he shot. Speculation, but it certainly makes sense. It's an appeal to the brother of the fraternity to, to don't kill us. Okay. That's why I say I, it's, it's all kind of, it's all part and parcel of this. Okay. Just a comment about uh, taking on, uh, you know, we borrowed some stuff. Huh? Yeah. There's a pattern in that. We borrowed a lot of things from Christian. We find truth wherever. The society was from the Presbyterian. Sure. We a lot of stuff that we borrowed from We do. We, we, we take in truth wherever we can find it. And we recognize it for what it is. Okay? Uh, I've got a number of uh, clients that are finding some really good stuff in Joel Olstein and finding some inspiration there. Awesome. Yeah. So that man, the other watch, he was envious of Joseph. He, he, they were very threatened by that because the Masons, because not only were uh, the Masons growing in Nauvoo, they were growing in power and strength and influence, but also because it was now being corrupted because women were now being involved. Joseph saw them as equals. That's just not allowed. Yes. I think one thing that we can say in all of this, I've never had any issues because it didn't matter to me what right. the actual symbols were. It was more important what they represent. And I think that we can just pretty much guarantee that there will continue to be change in the church 
Right. Or whether we're using white bread or whole wheat bread in our sacrament. Yes, and hang on to that idea because part of what's about to happen, this doctrinal explosion is about to change their perspective dramatically. It just changes how they see the world and themselves to, and, it, and the ripples are, are seen all the way down to the day. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And so just hearing this connection with our ordinances, I just find that amazing the thought that it's possible that the Freemasons have been preserving those rituals. Some, some elements of that, absolutely. Yeah, okay, now let, uh, real quickly, let me just... Okay, here's the differences, real quickly. In Masonry, then... The focus is on uh, the Temple of Solomon and things that happened in the Temple of Solomon. Uh, the focus is also on building a fraternity among us. Um, you, you're going to uh, be directed by the worshipful master, the head of the lodge. And you're all bound to one another. Can't see that disappearing there. Okay? Joseph would see in that elements that were workable, but then he would add that instead of the focus being on the Temple of, Create, uh, Temple of Solomon, the focus is on creation. Taking it much farther back and understanding where we're trying to go. Instead of trying to build a fraternity, we're trying to build towards exaltation. Everything that Joseph is about to do in 1842 is to try, like Moses did and Enoch did and Alma did and everybody else, he's trying desperately to bring this group of people and introduce them into the presence of God. What can I do to bring my people to God and have them be able to walk back into His presence? Because one of the things I haven't even included in this, do you know what is also... Now suddenly released in, in May of 1842, right at the same time as all of this, the Pearl of Great Price. Here comes the Book of Abraham. And we've got Enoch and Moses. And, and, and these guys that are being able to be brought back into the presence of God. And he's really wanting this for these saints. And the temple is that vehicle. So the whole idea was to prepare them for exaltation. Uh, instead of the worshipful master, we're being bound to God and Christ. And bound to God. Okay? Alright. And, and trying to enter God's presence. Now, closely tied to that is the other element. Doctrinal development number two. And that is the... Uh, Organization of the Relief Society. Uh, the, the germ, sisters, you know this. The, the uh, germ for beginning a Relief Society based in Presbyterianism, but it was actually, who was the first driving force? 
Sarah Ray Kimball. Uh huh. I didn't know that. That's right. Hiram Kimball owned one of the biggest houses on the flats. She was very wealthy, and because of that, she felt a need. She was a member, he was not. She felt a real need to try and somehow help in the process here, and she saw women putting a lot of time and energy into helping with the temple, and so she thought she'd organize. Uh, making dresses and, and things like that. And and she will then go to, uh, there ought to be a constitution for this thing. Yeah. She writes the Constitution. She then, because she is that, at that point living with the Smiths, they just moved into the mansion house. She's living with the Smiths. Elijah Snow. Oh, Snow. That's Emma. Thank you. Eliza. Eliza Roxy Snow. Um, she will then drop the Constitution because she lives there. She shows it to Joseph. Joseph goes, oh, it's almost perfect, but I got something better. So let's get the sisters together, and then they will gather in the upstairs, the red brick store, on a Thursday, uh, and, and go ahead and organize that. Um, now, That's where I got the March 30th. Joseph will actually give seven addresses to the sisters that are recorded. A lot of times, this is in Eliza Snow's handwriting. And they are fascinating. In, and you can begin to see why it is that maybe some of the Masons wouldn't quite understand what it is that was going on with the women. Joseph, this, so Emma's writing notes. As Joseph and Elijah, I, I want this to be Emma. <laughs> I know. Uh, okay, so Elijah's taking notes as he's as he's speaking. We must obey that voice. Observe the Constitution that the blessings of heaven may rest upon us. All must act in concert, or nothing can be done. That the society should move according to what? The ancient priesthood. Yes. And he begins to intimate in there that the Relief Society is of ancient origin. That it's not just something we're going to kind of create out of whole cloth. And there's an ancientness to it. If you look at his uh, you look at the other six addresses, that's basically what he's saying. That he's re in other words, he's restoring the Relief Society. Basically, it's the best way to put that. Okay? 
Hence, there should be a select society separate from the evils of the world, choice, virtuous, holy. Said he was going to make this society a... Wow. Now, without having the endowment in hand, a society of priests and priestesses, kings and queens, that would be... That's amazing. That's an amazing statement. But what he's saying is this is calculated to raise you to that level. Would that be a threat? As the word of that leaks out to the to the, the Warsaw Lodge? That's a direct threat. But Joseph said, I see these women as equal. They bring to the table everything. We are united and we need you. And in fact, he will say that the, the church was not perfected until the Relief Society was organized. It was undone at that point. That's why in my own mind I have a hard time seeing the Relief Society as ancillary or as an appendage somehow. I see it as a necessary critical piece. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Okay? The man is not complete without the woman. Okay, you get that sense? Now, is this a jump forward doctrinally? Wow, this is light years. Women didn't have freedom. No, no, the women didn't. But it's referring there to Enoch and Paul. Yes. Isn't that fascinating? Did he provide more to that? No, he didn't. <laughs> I have no idea. But he is, he's going back, and it's a privilege of each member to live long, okay? Could be. We don't. That's why it's fascinating. Anything beyond that would be speculation, speculating. But you just get this sense of the importance that he is placing on the Relief Society and women in particular. I think that's what we need to be able to recognize. Yeah, you can. They're available. Yeah, it's available. Do it. Fascinating. Uh, and it's and it's bound up in this whole idea of where the church was now going. Yes. Okay. Uh, article from the religious uh, BYU Religious Study Center. Um, by the, when, when Eliza Snow, uh, who was uh, president of the Relief Society for a long time, traveled extensively through the territory uh, speaking to Relief Societies, and we have an awful lot of her work. Uh, by the way, anybody ever been to her grave? Have you? Okay. What's the grave say? Eliza R. Snow Smith. No, even though... But she's buried next to Brigham. Yeah, because she was sealed to Joseph Smith. Okay, Eliza R. Snow. Uh, here's what she said. Joseph organized a female relief society according to the commandment of God, the minutes reported. His wife Emma was president and she, I, was secretary. Some thought the brethren would save us. And we had nothing to do, but this was not the case. 
We had just as much to do as they had and had a great labor to do and would receive just as much blessings. An assertion of female moral agency and accountability, Joseph Smith's admonition, led women uh, to a path of spiritual maturity and independence in making choice for themselves and accepting responsibility for their own spiritual progression. I just think that's gorgeous. Because I, I think, and we've talked about it before, I think that's part of the tsunami that's going to come back with all the increasing sister missionaries that are now going to come back as return missionaries saying, I can stand on my own feet doctrinally. I, I understand. I'm as entitled to inspiration as my husband is. Rather than, I'm going to change, I'm going to change diapers and he's going to tell me spiritual truths. We're going to teach each other as equals. That's awesome. Yes. Oh, sure. Where the suffrage movement hit its greatest stride around the turn of the century? In Utah. <laughs> These guys did great. Okay. All right. Uh, let's see how we do. Um, that's what I'm doing. So there are three doctrinal developments that really, there, there are several doctrinal developments that you have uh, in Nauvoo. One is going to be, notice we haven't even cracked 124 yet. <laughs> the good news is, is that we're also talking about section 124 next week. So today is more doctrinal development. We'll be meeting. We'll be meeting next week, and next week will be part two. Of, and we're just, so today we're talking more doctrinal development. Next week we're going to get more into section 124, but I want to start wading into it if I can. Doctrinal development number one is the incorporation of the development now of the endowments. The first endowments are going to be given in the upper room of the rhetoric store. Uh, then the Relief Society comes online, and here comes, here comes the explosion on this. Uh, and let me let me put it let me put it in this frame if I can, without trying to kind of cheapen our discussion here. Um, one of the uh, years ago, one of the shows that I used to like to watch the most was uh, uh, Star Trek: The New Generation. John Luke Picard and. You know, and uh, Deanna Troy, and okay, remember that? Let me know that show. They had an episode on there called First Contact that I loved. First Contact was a very interesting episode because it said they they were aware of this world that was not yet doing interplanetary travel, but they were about to be. They now had the technology to travel between planets, and they knew the Federation did that this planet was about to start doing interplanetary travel and might find out there's other people out there. And so what do we do? So, the, so what they did is they said, so they've been sending people down onto the planet to just kind of see how they were doing. You're looking around, they seem to be doing fine and everything. Then comes the moment when it's like, okay, we're going to send down Captain Picard to come down onto the planet and introduce himself to the president of the planet to say, um, we're from another planet. 
And so they start trying to introduce us. Why are you here? Well, we're here on a spaceship. The spaceship is in your atmosphere. We've been down to tell you that there's a lot of other planets out there. We're part of it. And you guys are about to be joining us. And of course, you know, they try and explain this to this guy. And it's like, oh, this, is, this guy's nuts. You know, these guys are trying to claim that you are from another planet. Can you picture that? Be bizarre. Until, of course, they blink out right in front of him, and the guy like, oh, that's weird. So, one of the ways that they finally persuade him is that they say, What we would like to do is to take you up to our ship. You willing to do that? And he says, Well, this is pretty nutty, but okay. So, they go ahead, you know, beam us up. And they get up, on, up to the ship. And here's this president of this planet. And he goes out to the window and he looks out and is like, oh my gosh, there's my, there's my earth down there. And you guys really are from another planet. Yeah, and we're friendly. We want you to join us. We're not here to attack or anything. We just want you to be part of us. And it takes this guy a while ago. What? Wow. And I love this line. Picard will finally say to him, um, when you go home tonight, what are you going to tell your wife? <laughs> and here comes the line. And I, and I just think this is profound. He goes, I'm going to have to tell her that when I woke up this morning, I thought I was the president of the universe. Now it turns out that I'm a voice in the chorus. <laughs> That's a massive shift in the view of how he saw himself and their place in the universe. That is a paradigm shift that is just huge. Where the world looks one way one moment and immediately the world looks completely different. That happened in Nauvoo. A shift that large. That massive. And it will come... at the funeral of Seymour Brunson. Seymour Brunson's a good man. They are holding the funeral probably at the old burial ground. Joseph, in the middle of that funeral, on August 10th, 1840, will turn to Sister Jane Nyman, who lost her son Cyrus, and, she, and he will say to her, the time is now fully come that those now living can perform baptisms for those that have passed on so that they can now receive all the blessings. There are two reports. One says she did it immediately. Another report says she waited a couple of weeks. And, and, and she will then go down to the river and, and a brother Olmstead will baptize her for her son. Uh, yes. And and now now it's on. You know, there will be something in the order of 6,000 recorded baptisms for the dead that will take place in Nauvoo. But before we get more into that, let me just ask, why would this introduction, think about, think about, I wake up in the morning, 
I'm the center of the universe. Now I find out I'm the voice in the chorus, even if that chorus is the tabernacle choir. The shift. Why would this be such a dramatic change? What is there about that? The living? Yes. Yes. Suddenly, if everything broadens up. First of all, what does it say about baptism? Essential. Okay, and? Why is this such meat? Why is it so huge? In what way? Yes. And who's going to save them? We are. Yeah. That also is significant. So here comes this other one. We're, we're, we're doing this kingdom of priests and priestesses. And it's not just the, the priesthood that is doing it. Anybody can do this. Yeah. 38, 39. Yeah. 39. Until about 45 years later, people were Yes, and if this is a, if this is as big, this is going to take a while. Yeah, see how big this is? Is that what you're going to say? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, that as soon as the word gets out, just before he died on his dying deathbed, Joseph Smith Sr. will turn to Joseph and say, make sure Alvin's work gets done. I mean, that, that was on Father Smith's. Suddenly, it all make it all makes sense. Okay. Now, by the way, yeah. No, but but what they're saying, and we certainly heard it during the during the presidential campaign. That's a pretty weird doctrine. Does does, does Mitt Romney believe? Uh, that, that we should be like baptizing dead bodies or that we're trying to make everybody into Mormons and we'll just wait till they die and then we'll baptize them so we're still we're going to get them after if you're not going to knock on the door we'll wait till you die and get you later <laughs> and so now you're getting on, on places like like Bill Barr and John Stewart and there's real kind of kind of real blasphemous things that they're doing in the middle of their comedy sketches attacking baptism for the dead Yes. Yeah. 
But again, if you think about where this begins to put things doctrinally, what does this say about, for instance, what does this say about the spirit world? They're, they're there. They're waiting. And, and particularly, who's waiting? Our families. Suddenly, in this one moment, the more that the saints thought about this, now I am connected, as Joseph, Joseph F. Smith would say, uh, one of his last sermons, they are, they are bonded us with links that we cannot break. And that we become responsible for them. Now suddenly phrases like, Saviors on Mount Zion. And the hearts of the children turning to the fathers mean everything. And now there is a means and an ordinance to do that. When did Joseph realize that he was That's a good question. How, how soon did Joseph realize when we talk about the dispensation, the fullness of times, and the responsibility now by virtue of this, what, what our responsibilities were? Because now when we talk about being responsible for the other people in the, in the rest of the world, now where did that world extend to? And we're responsible for it. Yeah, and, and, but he couldn't, he may not have had a place in the time to be able to, to actually expound on this. But now suddenly the saints were getting this in a massive way. And by the way, this is before even the rest of the endowment is now in place. Okay? Because this is, this is simply, this is 1840. So if, if you've been to Nauvoo and you go down Harley Street... And they talk about that as the Trail of Tears kind of thing. And you go down to the, the, the landing there where the wagons there in 1846 were kind of lined up, coming down. And, and uh, there, there's a landing there and then there's a memorial to those that died along the way. If you go just to the south of that, there's, a, there's another kind of a beach that extends off of there, that was Baptismal Beach. That's where saints, at any given moment, you might look out and see like four or five people standing there and lines of people going out to Baptist, off of Baptismal Beach to go and be in. And Joseph had to say, we need it recorded. And then, oh, and by the way, men for men, women for women. Some of them had to be redone. Yes. And the other thing that they did, of course, is that, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week, that he had to say, and the temple is almost done. We need to, we need to have a baptismal font. The temple won't be finished. We'll put the baptismal font in the footings of where the temple is. Now you don't do it on the beach. You do it in the baptismal font. And now there's such a rush to get there, it's working night and day, there's still not enough, so they start kind of doing it back on the beach again. <laughs> and then, the, then the, that wooden baptismal font started to leak, so then they carved one out of stone. And the temple is now only up to about a square. It's only just a few feet high, so they build a little shack over the top of the baptismal font, because there's still a line of people who get it, who want to... Recover their ancestors. Yeah. I'm just thinking that all the years prior to all the suffering the saints, Joseph went through 
saints themselves had to be in a place where they finally got it and when they got it again it's that moment when suddenly the world changes and the eternities change and we see what we're involved in yeah okay that said let me in, in the last couple of minutes then go with this in the death we do things for ourselves, but basically we do things uh, for others. One of the sacred ordinances of the temple is baptism for the dead. So that uh, we perform baptisms for and in behalf of those who have lived before. First Corinthians 15, uh, where Paul speaks about those who baptize themselves for the dead. And uh, obviously takes for granted that a there were people who did so, and he has no complaint about it. Now that the Mormons have it again as a practice. Professor Christopher Stendhal of Harvard Divinity School became the Bishop of Stockholm in Sweden. During the visit that we made there, he called a press conference, invited the various of his friends, and then said the following. He said, I have three rules for interfaith discussion. To wit, number one, if you're going to ask the question, what do others believe in their various faiths? Ask them, not their critics, not their enemies. Because what one religious tradition says about another is usually a breach against the commandment, thou shalt not die false witness. Number two, if you're going to compare, don't compare your bests with their worsts, but compare bests with bests. Most people think of their own tradition as, as it is at its best, and they use caricatures of the others. And then number three, he said, leave room for holy envy. Then he said, let me give you an example of my holy envy for the Latter-day Saints. We Lutherans, when we lose our loved ones, we have funerals, we have cemeteries. But that ends our concern with those who have come before. The Latter-day Saints care about their forebears to the point that they want to bring the blessings of Christ's atonement to them. So they build temples, and according to Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians, they perform baptisms for the dead. And then he smiled and said, I have holy envy for that. As well as you. Brothers and sisters, I think part of what happens, uh, particularly if you've grown up in the church, 
you may not understand. I think we understand, but we may not appreciate the depth to which baptism for the dead opened the eternities. It opened the heavens. It expanded the view that Joseph Smith saw and struggled mightily to bring his saints to get to. And that is that it's far more expansive, it's far more merciful than we have any idea that he would open that opportunity, that God would open it, offer that opportunity to everybody. And ultimately that it forged a welding link between us and those that have come before. That we become saviors on Mount Zion. What that did for those saints, to the fact and to the wit that they were in the process of in Nauvoo, in 1845, in 1846, doing that sacred work in the temple, and then walking out of that temple, climbing into their wagon, and getting in line down Parley Street to get on the next uh, barge going across, and walking away from everything they had. But they had done, but the, that temple did what it was designed to do. I bear you my testimony that there's no more sacred responsibility than this. That baptisms for the dead open the door in a more powerful way than we have any other. That next week as we get a chance to start talking in a little bit more in depth as we go through section 124, we're going to see why it is that the Lord wanted it done and how we wanted it done specifically. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name.